If you have your Bibles, turn to the book of 1 Kings chapter 19. 1 Kings chapter 19, it's in the Old Testament. Um, and if you have your Bible apps, it's easier to get there. But uh, as I prayed through what to share this morning, this chapter just leaped from the page and ministered to me personally. And I pray that the Lord does the same. But before we dig in to the content and stories here in 1 Kings 19, it's important to set the stage into what's taking place. So the story is about a man named Elijah, with a J, not Elisha, who was a mighty prophet of God. He was used by the Lord to bring revival and bring miracle work workings to the nation of Israel. And so Elijah is growing frustrated because he's praying for the Lord's move through the nation of Israel. And so, but the people are turning away from the Lord. They were worshiping a false god named Baal. And it was a Phoenician god that was overtaking people's faith in that day. And so Elijah was praying and man, discipleship schools and, and schools of ministry and Bible colleges were opening to disciple false prophets into the idolatrous worship of Baal. In fact, where our story picks up, there were 450 false prophets who stood up against Elijah. And it was what is deemed as one of the most prolific, spectacular, action-packed chapters in all of the Bible there in 1 Kings 18. We're not going to read it, but I'm going to summarize it quickly. So Elijah stands before 450 prophets, one man, 450, worshiping Baal. And he says, let's have a prophetic showdown, he says. We'll grab two bulls. You will build an altar, cut up wood, put it on the altar, chop up your bull, put the bull on that altar, and then pray for your God to bring fire from heaven on that sacrifice. So the prophets of Baal go, hmm, you're on, right? They had so much confidence in their false god, Baal. So they build an altar, they chop the wood, they set the bull. Elijah let them select the first bull, whatever bull they wanted. And then the Bible says that from morning until noon, they prayed and they chanted, but nothing happened. And I love Elijah. He has a sense of humor. He turns to the false prophets and he says, Maybe your God is asleep and needs to be awakened. Maybe he's, and literally used the word, relieving himself in the restroom if you study the Hebrew. Or maybe he's on a journey and distracted. You need to shout louder and maybe your God will wake up. And so the prophets get together. They're like, all right. So they pull out knives and lances and they're slashing themselves sacrificially. And they're bleeding, the Bible says, they're in, first, in, in, in chapter 18 of 1 Kings. And they're just dancing around this altar, calling out to their God, and nothing is happening. So then it's Elijah's turn. And Elijah says, batter up, I'm next. So he takes 12 stones and he builds an altar, one stone for each tribe of the nation of Israel. He chops the wood, puts it on the altar, grabs the bull, chops it up, puts the bull on the altar, and then he does something interesting. He turns to one of his buddies, his servants, and he goes, hey, go grab me four pails of water. And they're like, 
what? Water? He goes, yep, go grab four pails of water. So they grab the, the, these pails of water and they bring them to Elijah and he goes, dump them on the altar. And if I were the servant helping out Elijah, I would probably take him off to the side and say, but excuse me, sir, pastor, prophet, the whole goal here is for fire to consume this sacrifice. Why do you want to put water on it? Elijah said, just trust the Lord. So they dump the water on the altar. He says, do it again. So they dump another round of water on the altar. Then he says, do it again. And as they're dumping that third round of water on the altar, Elijah's digging a trench around the altar, man, because he wants it to be nice and wet, right? He wants to see a miracle of the Lord at work, and the trough fills up with water. And then Elijah does what any godly man would do in this case, where the people are watching to see if God is real. And he prays. Fifteen seconds into his prayer, fire rains down from heaven, the Bible says, and it consumes the bull, it consumes the wood, it consumes the stones, and it licks up the dust and every last drop of water on that altar. The prophets look at Elijah, they look at each other, and they go, uh-oh. <laughs> and Elijah says, seize and arrest them. And so they were arrested and they were escorted to the brook Kishon where Elijah oversaw their execution there in 1 Kings chapter 18. Now there was a problem because the king at this time was a man by the name of Ahab. And Ahab was a wicked king. In fact, he married a Phoenician princess named Jezebel, the Bible tells us. And we are, are familiar, if you know your Bible, with that name. It's typically not presented in a positive light, right? She was a wicked queen, wicked lady and ruler. She actually, from her Phoenician heritage, brought and introduced Baal, that Phoenician false idol, into the nation of Israel, and it spread like wildfire. So it was Jezebel that was leading and contracting and supporting financially the schools of ministry so that the worship of Baal would become the new world religion throughout the nation of Israel. So Jezebel hears about this prophetic showdown. Now, this was the main event of their day. If CNN, Fox News, MSNBC were around, you can guarantee they would be their HBO showtime. It would be the pay-per-view event of the year there in Israel, the showdown of all showdowns there. So Jezebel would no doubt be at home in the palace. Her husband Ahab would have no doubt been at this event, and she would be pacing. I could just imagine in my mind's eye her pacing in that palace, and she's waiting for her hubby Ahab to get home. So Ahab gets home, and she races up to him, and she asks, well, how did it go? Ahab shakes his head. He goes, honey, I have bad news. And she goes, well, what's the news? Well, Elijah won. The Lord of Israel won. And I have more bad news. And what's that? Well, your prophets, the 450 guys that are your priests, your pastors, they're all dead. Elijah executed them. You can just, I mean, when you read the passage, just feel the blood boil within Jezebel. And our story picks up right at this point. Jezebel hears the news that the prophets are dead and that Elijah had won. And our story picks up there in 1 Kings chapter 19, 
starting in verse one. Let's read verses one and two. And Ahab told Jezebel all that Elijah had done, also how he had executed all the prophets with the sword. Then Jezebel sent a messenger to Elijah, saying, So let the gods do to me, and more also, if I do not make your life as the life of one of them by tomorrow about this time. Imagine being the messenger as Jezebel is penning this letter. It's literally a death warrant for Elijah and hands it to a messenger saying, go find Elijah and hand this to him as it had the royal seal, right, that wax seal on that letter. So this messenger no doubt heard that 450 of his buddies just got executed and he's been asked to take this letter to this man of God, Elijah. So he goes and finds Elijah, no doubt in trepidation and fear and and says, Elijah, don't kill the messenger. I'm just delivering a letter from Jezebel. And as Elijah takes that letter, he doesn't know what to expect. It's his death warrant. He is a walking dead man at this point the Bible says. And so, the Bible says there in verse 3, and when he saw that, he arose and ran for his life and went to Beersheba, which belongs to Judah, and he left his servant there. So, I want to stop here because I wonder if some of us can relate with Elijah. The title of this message is Lessons from the Prophet Elijah, because there's so much to glean here. I've been so encouraged and challenged by reading about his life. And and what do you do when you hear bad news, when the doctor calls, when you hear from your kids, when you get that bad news from school, fill in the blank, right? Your friend, a relative, you lost your job, whatever the case might be. You see, the Christian life isn't void of heartache and sorrow and challenge and suffering. God allows it into our lives. And when we find ourselves in a position like Elijah, where he was receiving bad news for simply doing what the Lord asked him to do. I mean, at some point, Elijah's like, what do you want me to do, Lord? I'm, I'm being obedient to do exactly what you're asking me to do, and now my life is at stake. It's on the line here, and he runs. I can relate to that. Perhaps you can too. We have a tendency to run when the going gets tough or when we hear that bad news. Instead of going to the Lord, we run from the Lord, and I'm here to encourage you, even the best of all men, the best of all women, those used mightily by the Lord, find themselves in a situation where they don't know how to respond when bad things happen. Elijah ran, and he ran, and he ran over 70 miles as far south as his legs could carry him to the city called Beersheba. And if I was his servant, I would be like, boss, can we please rest? (laughs) So they finally stop at Beersheba, and Elijah is so paranoid at this point. He's worried for his life that he leaves the servant there in Beersheba, the Bible tells us in verse 4. And he himself went a day's journey into the wilderness, and he came and sat down under a broom tree. 
and he prayed that night that he might die. Yes, I'm reading from the Bible. And he said, it is enough. Now, Lord, take my life, for I am no better than my father's. Don't overlook this. This is Elijah, the mighty man of God, running from Jezebel, a woman, right, who had sent him a death warrant. And he's so paranoid when he arrives there in Beersheba that he has to run a day's journey, not knowing where he's going. He finds a cave. He gets in this cave, and he weeps, and he cries. Can you relate? And he says, Lord, kill me. I want to die, Lord. I'm done. I'm finished. I, 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 I'm done, Lord. This is God's man. Miracle after miracle after miracle, mightily used by the Lord. What happened? This isn't the Elijah that I know. This isn't the Elijah that I think about when I hear his name. The Elijah I think about is powerful. He is doing miracle after miracle after miracle. God is moving through his life. I don't recognize this man. He's not supposed to be like this. He's not supposed to be worried, having a crisis of faith, depressed, dare I say suicidal. He asked to die this day. God's man, finding himself in the pit of despair. And he prays, Lord, take my life. I struggled with this because it didn't fit the framework of who I believe God wants to use in life. We like to think he uses perfect packaged people to do his greatest work. But the Bible suggests that he uses broken, empty, weak vessels because his glory is best displayed through those people. And here is Elijah. And I'm so comforted because in the New Testament, in the book of James, I'll read it to you. James, the writer of that epistle, says in chapter 5, verse 27, Elijah was a man with a nature just like ours. You see, James knew that we would be reading this passage one day as he's penning his letter. And as he's talking about Elijah, he knew that the Bible had this chapter in here, that in a moment of weakness and depression, of despair, of a crisis of faith, Elijah would be running and begging the Lord to take his life. And James reminds us that even the best of the best are just like us. They're frail, they're weak, they go through bouts of depression, despair, they question, they don't understand everything. Can you relate, church, with Elijah? I sure can. I don't always understand why God does the things that he does. I don't always understand why I get the bad news that I get. I don't always understand why I struggle with the things that I do. But when I read stories like this, I say, Lord, you are so good because Father, you delight in my weakness, Lord. Let me repeat that. You delight when I acknowledge I am weak and I come to you and say, I can't do it, Lord. That's when you do your best work through a broken, weak, open vessel that doesn't 
know what else to do. And God says, I can take over. I can take over and watch me work. You see, God still loved Elijah. And even though he found himself in the pit of despair, God still loved him and was going to great lengths to minister to him. And we're gonna read about it. But I want to say something here. As fast as you can run, God is faster. As deep as your despair is, it's not too deep that God can't reach. We have to believe, know, and understand that the Lord loves us. He has a plan for us. He wants to use us. And he knows we're not perfect. He knows it. But somehow we get caught up in this feeling like we have to be, pretend to be, and and we put on this charade. Church, we're not perfect. (laughs) Elijah, I can relate to him, and perhaps you can too. God outran him. God found him. And you know what I'm thankful for? I'm thankful that God didn't answer his prayer. Because Elijah's prayer was to be put to death. And I'm thankful that God said, I'm going to ignore that one. (laughs) Elijah, your prayers are powerful. It took you 15 seconds for me to rain down fire from heaven to consume the prophets of Baal and that sacrifice. And here you're in the cave crying all night, weeping all night, your tears flowing through down your cheeks. But I'm gonna tell you something, Elijah. The psalmist says that God collects every tear. He puts it in a bottle and he has a special book that he often refers to. I love it. God has a heavenly library and in that library is a book of tears. And when he turns to chapter Steve, right, my boy, he'll say, here are Steve's tears. Here are the moments he was weak, when he was weeping, when he was tired, when he didn't understand. I kept every single one of those tears and they're in my book here. Stevie, I've got them. I collect every tear, it's so precious to me. And I want you to know that I am with you in those deepest hours of your life, as I was with Elijah. And I'm thankful he didn't answer Elijah's prayer. Because had he answered that prayer, Elijah would be done. And we would have missed out on the future life that Elijah lived, which we're going to get to, which was marvelous. But if you're praying for something and it's not being answered, we have to take joy in unanswered prayer because sometimes we ask for things we shouldn't or that isn't God's best for us. I have found this to be the case. And I'm so thankful as I pray, and I don't see it immediately, but down the road I see it, and I say, Lord, thank you. Especially, I think, in my early days as I was a young guy praying for the Lord to give me a wife, I'm so thankful he didn't answer my previous prayers and brought Ab into my life. Ab, I love you. God knows when and how to answer our prayers, and we, we have to remember that. And I'm thankful that he didn't answer Elijah's prayer. So our story picks up, continues there in verse 5. As he's in this cave, he's weeping, he's crying. Then as he lay and slept under a broom tree, and a broom tree was like a juniper. It was about 12 feet tall. It had some shade, not great shade, but Elijah wasn't picky um, in, in the desert heat there. 
Um, so he slept under a broom tree and suddenly an angel touched him and he said to him, arise and eat. He was touched by an angel. Imagine being alone. I mean, sometimes my kids, when they're scared, especially when they were younger, would come up and wake me up at night. And I would just, especially if I was in a deep sleep, I was out of it, right? Elijah is alone in the desert under a broom tree, right? And he's touched by an angel. And that angel says, get up, Elijah, eat. And so in verse um, six, then he looked and there by his head was a cake baked on coals and a jar of water. So he ate and drank and laid down again. I love Elijah. He had ran 70 miles. The angel wakes him up, prepares a fire with some coal. Hey, Elijah, want some angel food cake? <laughs> I couldn't resist that one. And then he brings water, right? And Elijah's just like, this is great, right? But Elijah's still in this depression, right? He doesn't understand what the Lord is doing. So here he is, and he eats, and he drinks, and then what does he do? He falls back asleep. I'm like, Elijah, there's an angel right there. What are you doing? And he falls back asleep, the Bible tells us. And we read on in verse 7, And the angel of the Lord came back the second time and touched him and said, Arise and eat, because the journey is too great for you. So there's a key, a revelation here in the second verse that intrigues me and has intrigued Bible scholars through the years. You see, in the Old Testament, there is something known as a Christophany. When Jesus shows up in the Old Testament and he ministers and he speaks and he interacts with his people. And typically in the Old Testament, when Jesus shows up before the Gospels, he is referred to as the angel of the Lord. And I wonder in this passage, because it refers to the angel of the Lord, if it was none other than Jesus himself the second time. The angel of the Lord went to Elijah. And it's almost as if, man, it would be awesome if just an angel was dispatched. If God there in heaven said, hey, Mikey, Gabe, come here, the archangels. I want you to go help Steve. He needs some help right now. And he dispatched them. I would just be amazed by that if I had a chance to interact with them. He sent an angel, but the second verse says that the angel of the Lord came down. And I wonder, and scholars wonder, if this was Jesus himself coming down, relating to Elijah, with Elijah, and saying, Elijah, it's me. I know you don't understand it. I know your mind can't comprehend it. I know you're challenged and struggling and you want to end your life. But Elijah, you've got a great journey ahead of you. And Elijah would look at him on that day and say, you have the wrong guy, Lord. I ran, I'm depressed, I just asked you to take my life, and you're here telling me you wanna feed me, nourish me, and use me still? And the Lord says, uh-huh. I can do great things through a man in your state, Elijah, because then my power and my glory gets the credit. 
and it's not you. And in that moment, Elijah, Elijah had to make a decision there because the Lord said, the journey is too great for you. And Elijah had to make a decision because he knew he had reached his end. There was nothing else Elijah could give. He, he couldn't even perceive himself in the ministry at this point. And the Lord said, it's too great for you. And Elijah says, I agree with that, Lord. And it was in this moment that Elijah had this revelation, this understanding. It was like he was brought back to the basics that as much as Elijah was used to do powerful works, used mightily week after week, month after month, he had to reach an end where he recognized that it was the Lord moving through his life. And there was nothing about him or his ability that was creating these miracles. And he reached this end, and the Lord said, I can do significant things through a broken vessel. Elijah, I'm ready to use you. So verse eight, Elijah arose, and he ate, and he drank, and he went in the strength of the food for 40 days and 40 nights as far as Horeb, the mountain of God. So Elijah went from the pit of depression to a Boston Marathon runner. <laughs> 40 days and 40 nights, man, I don't know what the Lord fed him, but I want some. Because he ran and he ran and he ran, and he went to Horeb, which for you Bible students know that this is Mount Sinai, where Moses received the Ten Commandments of the Lord. Many scholars believe this was about 200 miles away, some say 250. So this is quite a distance that Elijah covered in 40 days and 40 nights as he ran to this uh, mountain there in Horeb that had history. Verse 9, and there he went into a cave. Why does he like caves? <laughs> and he spent the night in that place. And behold, the word of the Lord came to Elijah, and he said to him, meaning the Lord, what are you doing here, Elijah? I find it interesting when the Lord asks questions in the Bible, because it's not like he doesn't know the answer, right? So here he sees Elijah. Elijah tries to play the first game of hide and seek with the Lord, and the Lord said, it's not the first time, Elijah. The first game of hide and seek took place in the Garden of Eden. You know the story, where Eve is told not to eat of the fruit from the, you know, from that tree, uh, from, 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 from that fruit there in the Garden of Eden, from that tree in the Garden of Eden. And what, is, what does Eve do? She is convinced and persuaded by the devil himself, the serpent, to take a bite of that forbidden fruit. And so she does. And then she says, Adam, this is so tasty. Come over here. And he's like, uh, like any good husband, he goes, uh, honey, um, are you sure we're supposed to do that? And she said, it's so good. And they were deceived. And so Adam took a bite of that fruit. And we know what happens. They realized for the first time that they were naked. They realized for the first time what disobedience to God's word resulted in. They realized they were naked. They sewed fig leaves to create coverings for their bodies. And then the Bible says they heard the movement of the Lord in the cool of the day there in the garden. You can read about it there. 
in the opening chapters of Genesis. And the Bible says that they both hid from the Lord. And the Bible goes on in Genesis 3, when they hid themselves among the garden, God called out to Adam and said, where are you? Adam was forced to come out that day. God knew exactly where Adam was. But God asks these questions because he wants us to verbalize where we are. He wants us in a way to confess and acknowledge where we are. God didn't need to ask, where are you, Adam and Eve? He didn't need to ask Elijah, what are you doing here, Elijah? But he asked these questions because he wants us to know that he knows where we are. And there's comfort in that. When the Lord comes to me and says, Steve, what are you doing? He knows what I'm doing, but he wants me to verbalize it, to confess it, because through that process, I'm forced to acknowledge the things that I'm doing, the disobedience that I'm living in, the place that I'm at that I shouldn't be. That verbalization becomes a confession. And he was asking Elijah, just like he asked Adam and Eve, where are you? He was asking Elijah, what are you doing, Elijah? And Elijah, I tell you, he fails the test. We can read there in verse 10. So Elijah says to the Lord, I have been very zealous for the Lord God of hosts, for the children of Israel have forsaken your covenant tore down your altars and killed your prophets with the sword. I alone am left and they seek to take my life. He's playing his violin to the Lord. The Lord said, what are you doing? And what does Elijah do? He talks about all the great things that he's doing for the Lord. And the Lord is saying, Elijah, I don't care about all the great things that you're doing for the Lord if your heart is not in the right place with me. It doesn't matter outwardly what you're doing. If your heart is not in the right place with me, Elijah, I care about your heart, not the things that you do. Sure, I want the things that you do to be a response to the heart that you have for me. But when I ask you where you are and what you're doing, I don't want to know about all the great works and activity and busyness in your life because it's covering up the issue of the heart, Elijah. You're far from me, but I'm here with you, Elijah. I'm not giving up on you. You're depressed. You asked me to kill you, but I'm not giving up on you. I'm going to let my love surround you, envelop you, and restore you, Elijah, because that's what my love does, the Lord would say on that day. And Elijah would feel the Lord's presence and love and grace and mercy and the Lord would take it a step further. He would say, Elijah, we're going to get back to basics. Now, keep in mind, Elijah was known as a man on the move. Mighty miracles, fire from heaven, a mover, a shaker, miracle after miracle. He was used to activity and being used by God in a powerful way. And God wants to get back to the basics with Elijah. And the next verse is key here, church. Don't miss it. There in verse 10, verse 11. Then God said to Elijah, go out and stand on the mountain before the Lord. And behold, 
the Lord passed by and a great and strong wind tore into the mountains and broke the rocks in pieces before the Lord. But the Lord was not in the wind. And after the wind, an earthquake. But the Lord was not in the earthquake. And after the earthquake, a fire. But the Lord was not in the fire. And after the fire, a still, small voice. That's when Elijah heard the Lord. A man who was used to fire and earthquakes and wind and activity, that was what was defining him. And the Lord said, it's not about those things. It's not about what you do for me. It's about hearing my voice. It's intimacy. It's staying close enough to me that you can hear the whisper when I speak it, Elijah. That's what I need you to understand, and that's where I want my boy to come back to. It's a still, small voice. And that still, small voice that spoke to Elijah back then speaks to us today. But if you're like me, we have so many voices like the wind surrounding our lives. We have so much in our calendars of meetings and movement and errands and activities that it feels like our world is constantly shaking. We never slow down enough to hear the Lord. Or if you're like me, you were stressed out and the fire of frustration just fills us and consumes us. And man, we're in the heat of life, whatever your case might be. And it feels like, man, when am I going to get out of this fire that I'm in? Through it all, the Lord is speaking. He's speaking today. He'll speak to you tomorrow. He wants to speak to you the next day and the next day and the next day. He often speaks through a still, small voice. And if we're not hearing it, I challenge everyone here, including myself, are we looking for the wrong thing? Oh, God, if you could just move miraculously, then I'll know that you're God. When God says, Stevie, I'm, I'm speaking to you today. No matter how hot that fire gets or how rapid that movement is or how destructive that wind appears to be, I will be with you, Steve. I'm speaking to you. Many years ago, as I was praying through this whole principle of hearing the voice of God, the Lord really ministered to my heart. And he allowed me to kind of organize in my personal journey the ways in which the Lord speaks. And I call it the 3P principle. It's been a blessing for me, and I'm gonna share it for you, with you all. 3P principle, that God speaks to us pastorally through people. He speaks to us prophetically through his word. And he speaks to us peacefully through prayer. And God has always been faithful in my life. And what do you mean by these things, Steve? Well, if we're going to hear the still, small voice in our life, we have to understand the channels through which this still, small voice can come through. He uses people to minister to us. He uses Pastor Garrett every Sunday to challenge me. 
and perhaps challenge you. He uses my wife and my kids when they speak truth into a bad attitude that I may be having. Yes, he uses babes, right? Out of the mouth of babes comes truth to minister to our hearts. He uses friends, right, to challenge us to say, hey, Steve, what are you doing, bud? Is that really what the Lord's called you to be and how he's called you to behave and act? God uses people. He speaks to us pastorally through people where God is giving someone a word for us. It could be a Bible verse that they share. It could be a word of encouragement or a challenge. I'll never forget living in South Bend, Indiana. And at that time, we, my wife and I had been helping out with the church plant there, Calvary Chapel, South Bend, and, um, and we felt led to move to California. And I was scared to death to tell my pastor because I was the executive pastor there. I was the youth pastor there. I was the youth, I, I did so much there. And I was just like, I didn't want to see the look on his eyes when I told him I was moving to California. And so my wife and I just prayed. And we're like, Lord, if this is you, you're gonna speak to us. And as we prayed, true story, my wife gets a phone call from a lady at the church named Kathy who knew nothing about our situation. She was a godly older saint, retired, who spent a lot of time in prayer. And she called Aubrey and she said, this is gonna sound weird. And I don't know what you're gonna make of this, but I felt led to call you to tell you, you and your family need to move to California. Aubrey was stunned. <laughs> True story. She called me immediately and I was like, Lord, like, and, and does God do that all the time? No, he doesn't do that all the time, but God uses people to help direct us because God is so good. Whether it be the pastor on Sunday morning or a friend who's in prayer over our situation to call us and speak to us and encourage us towards the direction that the Lord wants us to move. God speaks pastorally through people, the first P. God speaks prophetically through his word. The Bible says, and you know, you, you know the story there, the Bible says in the book of Psalms that thy word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. The word instructs us. When I read the Bible every single day, I hear God's still small voice. I can't be in disobedience in an area of my life and then read a chapter in the Bible that deals with that disobedience and say the Lord's not speaking to me because he is. We complicate things so much. If we simply took the word at its, at its face value, we would have a majority of our questions answered about how we are to live our life. The problem is, if you're like me, we're stuck in these bodies of flesh that wanna do what they wanna do, right? <laughs> And sometimes the word of God conflicts with that. But I tell you, the word is true. And it speaks to our lives. It's God's still small voice ministering anytime we go to it. Third one is peacefully through prayer. When we pray about things, the Lord gives us a peace. The Bible says in the book of Philippians chapter four, verse six, be anxious for nothing but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving let your request be made known unto God and the peace of God which surpasses all understanding will guard your hearts and guard your minds in Jesus. 
So as we're praying through what to do, God says his peace is going to guard our minds and secure our hearts so that we get that affirmation that we need. God's peace becomes almost a referee in our lives, like calling an out or calling our actions safe, and I love it. So God speaks pastorally through people. He speaks prophetically through the Scripture, and he speaks peacefully through prayer. And when Aubrey and I have had to make major decisions through the years, it's, God's been faithful to align those three in our lives. It's been wonderful. Now, does he always do it? Do I have a checklist to say, God, you have to speak three times? No, but it's, it's something that helped me understand so that I, as a Christian, can be open to the streams through which God wants to minister to me. So I'm not just so closed off, and I, I, I don't miss the Lord's working in my life, but I'm looking for God moving through people in my life. I'm looking for God to speak to me as I go and do my devotions or the word is taught, and I'm looking for that peace that can only come through prayer, which means we need to pray, church, to have that peace. If you don't have a peace and you're not praying, listen, it's going to be very difficult for you to find that peace. Pray. Read. Put yourself in a position with accountability and other believers who are, have the freedom to minister into your life. Because when you do, you're going to hear that still small voice that Elijah heard. That still small voice. Verse 13 and 15, 14 as we land this plane. So it was when Elijah heard it, the still small voice, that he wrapped his face in his mantle and went out and stood in the entrance of the cave. And suddenly a voice came to him and said, what are you doing here, Elijah? It's that same question that the Lord asked, right? And when we skip to verse 15, the Lord said to Elijah, go, return on your way to the wilderness of Damascus. And we're not going to read the rest of it, but the Lord in essence was telling Elijah, I have work for you to do, lives for you to change in my power, people that I want you to touch, my glory and power that needs to be revealed through your life. Elijah reached a transformative moment here where he saw the Lord pick him up from the deep recess of his sorrow, anguish, depression, the, the point where he was in essence suicidal, wanting the Lord to just take him. As a good Jewish boy, he would have never taken his life. Unfortunately, we see in the church, we see pastors, we read about it every year, taking their life. Church, Elijah was a man just like us. And many, many believers find themselves depressed or at a point where they say, I don't know if I could go on. And I'm here to tell you that the Lord says, yes, you can. And as much as you feel that I've rejected you, I love you. I'm with you. In fact, I want to still use you. That's what he told Elijah. And Elijah would go on after this moment. See, many of us, if we were the judge, we would say, out. Elijah's disqualified. You're done. God said, uh-uh, 
the greatest work is ahead of him. In fact, in uh, 1 Kings chapter 19, Elijah would be used to anoint and disciple Elisha, who would be his successor, who would go on to do even greater works than Elijah. In 2 Kings chapter 2, the Lord would take Elijah in a heavenly chariot to heaven. Elijah never died physically. He was taken away to heaven, raptured, if you will, where he went before the Lord. In Matthew chapter 17, Elijah was one of two figures in the Old Testament there on the Mount of Transfiguration. So when Jesus decided to reveal himself to Peter, James, and John there in the Mount of Transfiguration, who did he tap in heaven to come with him? Elijah and Moses. Yes, the Elijah we read about. God said, I've got great works for you, Elijah. And Elijah stood on the Mount of Transfiguration with Jesus in all of his glory. And then in the book of Revelation chapter 11, Elijah is one of the two prophets that shows up during the tribulation period who is going to minister and preach and do mighty works before a Christ-rejecting sinful world as the tribulation of God is coming down and and the wrath of God is coming down on a Christ-rejecting world. God had the best days ahead of Elijah and he didn't even know it. And if God can do this with this man, what could God do with us in our weakness? Don't disqualify yourself. Don't feel as if God won't and can't and refuses to use you. Church, he loves us. He has great plans in store for us. And he simply wants to use our brokenness and our sorrow And he wants to turn that around that his strength might be made known. It's who he is. And I'm so grateful for that. So why don't we pray as the worship team comes out and ask the Lord to secure these words in our hearts. Father, I'm so thankful, Lord, that we can learn from men like Elijah. A man, Father, who was running hard and fast from you. A man who you pursued, Lord. You forgave, Lord. You empowered and you used, Lord, in ways that were beyond his wildest dreams. And Father, I wonder if there are is someone here this morning, Lord, who is feeling a lot like Elijah, who perhaps might be depressed or feeling as if their actions have separated them from you. I pray, Lord, that that individual seated here, Father, would know that you love them, that you died for them, Father, that you have plans to use them, Father, if they simply surrender their heart. So, Father, in the quietness of our hearts, Lord, may confessions go up to you. May we confess, Father, here this morning, especially those who are having a crisis of faith or are doubting your move or your works, Father, who are having a difficult time trusting you, Lord, or feel ashamed because of what they've done. I pray that your forgiveness would fall on them, Lord, as they ask for it right now. 
I pray that you would fill us, Lord, with your Holy Spirit, that we might be a people who walk in the confidence of the Lord, knowing, Lord, that you are the good thing inside of us, Lord, that anything good, Father, comes from you. So, Father, use us to be ambassadors of your love. And we ask all these things in the precious name of Jesus. And all of God's people say, amen, amen. If you need prayer, Pastor Jonathan and the prayer team will be here in front of uh, the stage. So don't leave this place without seeking prayer. God loves you. He has a great plan for you. And he wants you to know that he wants to speak his still small voice into your life day after day. So may we as his people listen and obey. In Jesus' name, God bless you.